0: The last few seconds down to re-entry. At this point there's very little anybody can do, including the astronauts, except wait as they come in through the uppermost fringes of the Earth's atmosphere. The computers put them on course. All anybody can do now is cross their fingers. Apollo Control, Houston. Uh, We've just had loss of signal uh, from uh, Honeysuckle uh Just about now, they should be going through the moment of maximum heat. And we'll only know whether or not that heat shield was damaged by the explosion three days ago. When they come out of radio blackout... Okay, Okay, we read you, Jack. There they are! There they are! They've made it. Yeah. All three shoots out. Listen to the crowd on the boat. We are in the mains. It really looks great. I thought i told all of you I want radio silent. yippee Kay mother... What does Apollo 13 have in common with Die Hard? They both have an important message for system safety. We go to the movies on Disaster Cast, episode 9. everyone. My name is Drew Ray, and you're listening to Disastercast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. This week we'll be examining the listener-suggested topics of Apollo 13 and safety in the movies. I'll also be ranting about one of the more annoying zombie theories in system safety, called risk homeostasis. On the last episode, I mentioned that there's a listener poll on the website at disastercast.co.uk. I'm going to leave the poll running indefinitely, so please feel free to drop past and leave suggestions about the direction you'd like the show to take. On the website you can also find episode transcripts and links to more information about the topics discussed on each show. Here's a quote from the Apollo 13 Review Board, also known as the Courtright Commission. The Apollo 13 accident, which aborted man's third mission to explore the surface of the moon, is a harsh reminder of the immense difficulty of this undertaking. The total Apollo system of ground complexes, launch vehicle and spacecraft, constitutes the most ambitious and demanding engineering development ever undertaken by man. For these missions to succeed, both men and equipment must perform to near perfection. That this system has already resulted in two lunar surface explorations is a tribute to those men and women who conceived it, designed, built and flew it. Perfection is not only difficult to achieve, but difficult to maintain. The imperfection in Apollo 13 constituted a near disaster, averted only by outstanding performance on the part of the crew and the ground control team which supported them. The problems with Apollo 13 started with the design of the spacecraft. The Apollo service module included two tanks of liquid oxygen. These were used to power the fuel cells, providing electricity to the other modules. As the tanks emptied, heaters were used to maintain tank pressure. Fans were also used to stir the oxygen, preventing local hot spots or layers of high and low temperature. These oxygen tanks were supplied to Rockwell by Beach Aircraft Corporation. The specification for the tanks originally required them to be powered by a 28-volt power supply. This was later changed to 65 volts, but some components on the tanks, in particular the thermostatic switches, were still only rated for the lower voltage. These switches measured the temperature in the tank, and opened if the tank became too hot. If operated at 65 volts instead of 28 volts, they melted closed, the exact opposite of what they were supposed to do. Operation of the thermostatic switches was not tested by the supplier, Beech, the assembler, Rockwell, or the operators, Kennedy Space Centre. In fact, the switches would never have been operated except for an unfortunate chain of events. Another design weakness, combined with mishandling of one of the tanks during manufacture, damaged the filling mechanism of oxygen tank number two. To work around this, an improvised filling and emptying procedure was used. Actually, the word improvised is a little unfair here. The new procedure went through proper change control, and the right people were consulted before the procedure was changed. The new procedure was problematic, though, since this is the first time the oxygen tank actually became hot. Instead of watching the temperature gauge to manage this, the operators relied on the thermostatic switches, which, as we've already discussed, were not going to work. The tank became too hot, and the insulation on the fan motor wires melted. We now had bare electrical wires in a tank full of liquid oxygen. The investigation after the accident showed that the failure of the thermostatic switches was only one of a number of ways things could have gone wrong with the tank. The insulation could have been damaged during assembly, the wires could have touched the heaters, or the insulation could have degraded over time. The underlying problem was really the design decision to put the motors and wires inside the tank, and the choice of materials. The hazard of ignition sources inside the tank was not properly managed, and the thermostatic switches drew the short straw. 56 hours into the flight, the hazard became reality. It wasn't the oxygen itself which exploded. Probably what happened is the rest of the Teflon insulation, submerged in oxygen and provided with a spark, caught fire releasing enough energy to rupture oxygen tank number two and to cause a leak in oxygen tank number one. Without oxygen pressure, the fuel cells began to fail. As a temporary fix, the crew connected the re-entry battery to the main electrical circuits. This let them keep the command module working, including being able to communicate with mission control. Very quickly, though, they realised that they would have to use the last dregs of power to recharge this battery. When you're stuck in a small spacecraft outside of the atmosphere, having enough power for re-entry is non-negotiable. Without oxygen or power, though, it was not possible to operate the command module. The crew would have to use the lunar module as a lifeboat for a four-day trip back to Earth. Contingency planning was almost enough to make this possible. Existing checklists allowed them to reduce the amount of electricity, water and oxygen needed. The one problem was that the lithium hydroxide cartridges used to remove water and carbon dioxide from the air couldn't handle three people inside the lander module for that long. This led to the scenes dramatically shown in the Apollo 13 movie, with ground crew racing to find a way to use components on board the spaceship to jury-rig a system for using the Command Module cartridges inside the Lunar Module. With the crew safely inside the Lunar Module, with enough air, water and electricity, the next challenge was landing them safely. There were two parts to this, course corrections and reactivation of the Command Module. The course corrections were performed, using the engines normally used to land on the Moon. They were chosen to make the flight time as short as possible and also so that the later burns would be less critical in case something else went wrong. Reactivating the command module required a brand new set of procedures due to the shortage of power. The new procedures used the landing module batteries for as much as possible, holding on to the module for as long as possible before ejecting it and using the very last dregs of power In the re entry batteries. The new procedures were ready 12 hours after the accident. They were then tested and refined by the backup crew in the flight simulators for two days before they were carefully read to the crew. The crew then had 24 hours to study and rehearse the procedures. Just as if Ron Howard was directing the actual flight instead of the movie, things didn't go smoothly. The crew made mistakes, and there was a tense 30 minutes when communication with ground control was patchy due to the attitude of the spaceship. The Apollo 13 crew survived, despite failures of design, change control, and operational safety. In large part, this was due to good contingency planning, and also an ability by the ground and space crew to adapt and improvise within and beyond those contingency plans. It's worth finishing this discussion with Recommendation 6 from the Review Board Report. Whenever significant anomalies occur in critical subsystems during final preparation for launch, standard procedures should require a presentation of all prior anomalies on that particular piece of equipment, including those that have been previously corrected or explained. Furthermore, critical decisions involving the flightworthiness of subsystems should require the presence and full participation of an expert who is intimately familiar with that particular subsystem. A willingness to accept anomalies and to consider past issues as fully resolved with no ongoing importance are dangerous features of an organisational safety culture. It is exactly these beliefs and behaviours which were to be blamed for the later Challenger and Columbia disasters. I received a rather interesting question from a listener about the connection between safety and movies. Specifically, he wanted to know whether watching disaster movies had any impact on the way people actually behaved in real-life situations. For example, we often see people running away from explosions, crashing through plate glass to escape, or escaping flash floods. Would people actually do daft things in a real disaster because they saw it in a movie? There are several ways to answer this question. The first is to note that people do copy behaviours that they see on the big and small screen. CPR wasn't part of civilian first aid training, until people saw it on TV and started copying it. Of course, it was done incorrectly on TV, and so they were copying an incorrect behaviour. Similarly, people using the Heimlich manoeuvre often credit seeing it done on television. There are a number of accounts of people escaping from a sinking car using the method they showed on Mythbusters. People also occasionally try to copy stunts that they see, This happens a lot more rarely than urban myths or local newspaper stories make out, but it does happen. Most examples are stunts that seem realistic enough to be plausible. Teenagers jumping off waterfalls or out of third-storey windows, or young children trying out wrestling moves. The second way that movies and television affect safety is due to a phenomenon called the availability bias. Our minds work out how likely something is by using a shortcut based on how salient that thing is. The easier it is to remember an example, the more likely we judge the event to be. That matters a lot when it comes to safety, because movies provide lots and lots of examples of bad things happening, but they're actually quite selective about what sorts of bad things. Death is common in movies, but serious injury is rare. There are lots of multiple vehicle accidents but very few single-vehicle accidents. Things blow up frequently due to terrorist action, but very seldom due to maintainer error. One of the weirder things about availability bias is that knowing about it doesn't help particularly much. Just about the only protection is knowing the actual data about how common various events are. The third way movies affect safety is that they show us what the world would be like if there were no safety engineers. Have you ever stopped to notice that the main plot of most action and disaster films tends to rely on a total lack of safety engineering? Take the Die Hard films as an example. In the original Die Hard, the bad guys simulate a terrorist attack to trick the FBI into cutting electrical power. Why? Because the protection that's there fails open instead of closed during a power failure. In the second diehard, we have an airport where a single power failure can remove all communication between ground and aircraft and where the instrument landing system beacons can be arbitrarily set to any angle. In the fourth diehard, Well, now actually, I won't even get started on that one. I'll leave it as an exercise for the listeners. I'm given to understand that there's a fifth film in the series but based on the reviews and a personal risk assessment, I think I'll watch Iron Man 3 instead. Purely for research, mind you, I'm sacrificing myself in an effort to find out how you make a safety case for a single-person flying suit with weapons activated by an artificial intelligence. One of the recurring problems with risk assessment and hazard management is that people tend to overestimate how effective mitigations will be. There are a number of reasons for this. Firstly, mitigations never work perfectly. Like any component or procedure, mitigations have failure rates. Since we usually only need the mitigation if the hazard occurs, mitigations very often have latent failures. Unless you test your fire extinguisher regularly you'll only discover that it doesn't work in the event of a fire, for example. Secondly, mitigations can have unintended consequences, sometimes called revenge effects. Rather than removing the risk, we replace one type of risk with another. A good example is bicycle helmets, which reduce the risk of some direct impacts to the head but increase the risk of twisting injuries to the neck. Thirdly, Decrease in risk can actually cause increases in risky behaviour. This is called risk compensation. It's usually hard in these cases to show causation rather than correlation. For example, improved equipment in sports such as climbing and football has been linked to more aggressive behaviour. There's a very insidious myth about safety though, where a little knowledge becomes a dangerous thing. It's incredibly rare for these effects to actually cancel out the mitigation, let alone make things worse. Just as safety professionals tend to overestimate the effectiveness of mitigations, non-professionals tend to latch on ideas such as risk compensation and underestimate the value of safety improvements. Just because the fire extinguisher might not work is not an excuse not to have a fire extinguisher. Bicycle helmets do reduce to serious injury, just not by as much as they were expected to. Better climbing equipment makes some climbers attempt riskier routes, but it also makes climbs on the old routes safer. One of the more bizarre hypotheses that keeps reemerging in the popular press is an idea called risk homeostasis, The hypothesis is that each person has a set risk tolerance and they will adjust their own behaviour so that their actual risk matches this tolerance. If we make their life safer, they will be compelled to engage in risky activity to keep balanced. Right out of the starting block, this idea has fundamental problems. Two of the most repeated findings in studies of risk acceptance are that humans are terrible at estimating risk and inconsistent in accepting it. At the very, very best, we could keep our level of perceived risk constant rather than actual risk, and the amount of perceived risk we wanted would change from day to day and situation to situation. If there were a risk homeostasis feedback loop it would require a whole new model of risk psychology at odds with decades of repeated experiments. Fortunately, we don't need such a model because risk homeostasis makes empirical predictions that don't come true. You can cherry-pick certain studies where airbags make drivers more aggressive or where childproof medicine caps don't reduce poisonings, but these are invariably isolated results counter to a body of work on those exact technologies. This leads, I think, onto the much more interesting psychological question. Why do people want to believe that safety improvements don't work? Journalists such as Richard Littlejohn and Simon Jenkins might be annoying, but they do represent a portion of the population that sees health and safety as the epitome of of big government intruding on personal freedom. How much easier to reject safety bureaucracy if you can claim that it isn't just tyrannical, but also silly and pointless. Risk homeostasis shares a role with simpler myths, such as the banning of conkers, snowballs and stepladders. They're all devices used to smokescreen a much bigger lie. They want you to believe that safety regulation exists to protect you from yourself. They say it's your life, your risk, your choice, and you don't need a nanny. It's a very clever way of reframing the truth. Safety regulation exists to protect you from other people. Those who profit from creating risk aren't the ones who have to accept the risk. Often, those who face risk aren't even a party to the contract. It sounds almost biblical, but it actually comes from Donoghue and Stevenson, a 1932 legal case about a snail in a bottle of ginger beer. Who then, in law, is my neighbour? The answer seems to be persons who are so closely and directly affected by my act that I ought reasonably to have them in contemplation. If they can fool you into thinking that regulation is only there to protect you from yourself, then you will let them take away the teeth of the regulator who's there to protect you full stop. That's it for this episode of DisasterCast. Server and production costs of DisasterCast are supported by I'm a Scientist, Get Me Out of Here. The theme tune is A Disaster Anthem by Eden Prayer.